All right. We've been walking through Luke, so that's where we're going to keep walking. So just while I look down at my notes, I want you to go ahead and open up to Luke 20. That's mainly where we'll be at. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. I want to start off with a story. So I came home from work one day. Most days, that is one of the most joyful parts of my day. Why? Because I get to see my wife and I get to see my four crazy kids call out, Papa, you're home, right? And they run to me. But this one day in particular, I'm looking around to see if he's here. He might be here. I'll just say that. He came up to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Papi, I, I broke one of the big Lego ships, one of the big ones, one of the complex ones. And I said, okay. And I could tell that he was kind of ashamed. He was broken. He was defeated. And I said, okay. Well, let me go upstairs and see it. And when I saw the ship he broke inside of me, I was like, oh, snap. He really broke a complex <laughs> one. I started to cry. No. You see, the, the ship he broke was so complex. It had so many pieces. And he came to me in his brokenness asking if I could fix it, if I could fix it. I looked down and I started looking at the parts. I even went to grab the PDF online. And I started to get more and more confused. And um, I looked down and I said, you know what? I can't fix this. I can't fix this. But I can rebuild it. I can't come and just patch it together. I got to rebuild it. And he kind of looked at me surprised because he didn't want me to break it more. He thought I could just put it back together like a quick fix. And yet when I saw how complex and how broken it was and how, how hard it was to put it together and all the mess it was, I said, no, what we need to do is completely break it so that we can make it again, so that we can transform it again. See, it takes being broken to be made new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help all of us here today to see you more clearly and to surrender to your good plan for us, even if that means we need to be broken. Lord, please rebuild us if we are broken this morning. Please renew us if we're losing sight of you this morning in our life. And please show us that you are forever and always the author of life and the cornerstone of which you're building a new people. In your name we pray, amen. amen. Well, let me give you a little bit of context. Jesus in Luke 19 had just done a couple different things. Things that mattered to Jesus, he was actually very broken over. Jesus came uh, and he came to, his, to the city of Jerusalem. And what did he do as he looked over Jerusalem? He wept, right? Because the city didn't know that God's son was visiting that city, right? And so he wept. He then goes to the temple, if you want to take a look down to Luke 19, verse 45. He goes to the temple, something very dear and near, not only to the people of God, but to himself, right? The place where he himself, as part of the triune God, where his father, where the God of the earth, right, is, is glorified through his people. And was the temple broken or was it alive? It was broken. It was corrupt by commercialism. It was corrupt by the focus on themselves and not God. They were so concerned about the coins that they peddled and what they sold for profit, and they had lost sight of the treasure 
himself, God. And so Jesus arrives to a broken city. He arrives to a broken temple. And as we're going to see today, he arrives to a broken priesthood, a broken people. And he wept inside for his city. And he cleared out the temple of its corruption. And he said it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And as we're going to study today, he confronted the priesthood. What Israel was always supposed to be. Not just the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the chief priests, but all of Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests that represented God. And yet, just like that Lego, they were a mess. They were a mess. And Jesus came down to earth for this purpose. As we've walked through Luke, we remember his birth, right? We can almost hear those Christmas passages being read to us. And we've walked through the life of Jesus, but now the tensions and the temperatures are getting hot in this story. See, Jesus, for all that time from birth and on, was actually pretty silent about his purpose and his plan, right? When he was a carpenter and when he was a teenager, you don't hear much about Jesus. And then he started his ministry at the age of 30. And he started to abstractly talk about the kingdom of God, to abstractly talk about um, the, the principles that would become the new kingdom of God, what he was building. He would start to mention in hints here and there to his disciples, sometimes to the crowds, that his time was coming to die. But he was pretty abstract, and he would always say, if you have ears to hear, what? Then let them hear, or you will hear. But for the most part, most people are like, man, this guy's a great teacher. Um, I kind of like him. He speaks with some authority. He visits the temples. He seems to keep all the rules. And yet when he's really started digging into the climax of his plan, the intersection, the crash course started to come. And by the time you get to Luke 19 and 20, you start to see the crash course happening. And it's not necessarily just with the city of Jerusalem and broad or just with the temple. Actually, talking about the temple, it's a very small passage. But it's with the people of God. It's with the priesthood of God. And so Jesus' authority started to be questioned. Started to be questioned. Take a look with me very quickly at Luke 20. Luke 20. What we're going to do actually over the course of this next chapter is do double dutch. Has anybody ever done double dutch? Who knows double dutch? Raise your hand. Like, raise it like you're proud of double dutch. You gotta, if, if you have actually jumped four or five times in a double dutch jump rope, you should be proud. Okay? Actually, on that corner when I was little, some sisters taught me to double dutch. And I think I jumped four or five times, so I'm proud of that, right? But what we're going to do, double dutch is when you're going back and forth, and there's different ropes tossing, right? Well, if you read Luke, you know that he is a meticulous author that has points that he wants to show. The way I read Luke 20 this week, I saw that he was presenting like the big overarching statements, and then he would give an example, and then he would present a big overarching statement or identity of Christ, and then he would give an example. And it was through what Jesus was living, so it's historical fact. But the way that he weaves it is to prove the points of who Jesus Christ is, the one who came to a broken mess that needed to break it down even further so he could rebuild it again into something new and something beautiful, a new city, a new kingdom, and most importantly, a new people, a new people. And not just for the Jews, 
Not for just this context, but as we're going to see for us this morning. For the people that have come 2,000 years in waves after he went and ascended to heaven that he's been building. So in Luke 20, it says this. One day is Jesus, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priest, the what priest? The chief priest, the main ones, the bosses, right? They are there and the scribes who knew the word of God, right? With the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gives you this authority? Let me read that one more time. This is what they asked him as the tensions were getting more and more hot, as the temperature was growing between the big guns, the power authority of the religious day, and Jesus. This is what they asked us. They finally said, man, what authority are you doing this? How are you speaking this way? Why are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And this is what Jesus answers in verse 3. He answered them, I will also ask you a question, as Jesus often does, right? Actually, the cleverness, the genius of Jesus is seen all throughout chapter 20. It's incredible how he answers their questions. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. So did he answer their question uh, straight out? No, he didn't, right? Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not, so they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So right away, he already knew what they were trying to do. Actually, you see a series about three to four traps that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, the religious power leaders of the day, are setting up to try to trap him. You see, they were done with him at this point. It says over and over in different ways they wanted to destroy him. They want to seize him at this very moment. And, and finally, as you get toward the end of 20, it's like they're outright like, let's murder this fool. Let's murder this dude. I'm done with him. So you could tell, you could feel as you read Luke that their rage is growing. They're, they're, they have like their last cart, their last card at the, um, at the spades table, and they're throwing it down. They're like, man, we only got a couple more. If these don't work, we're murdering this guy, right? So that's the, the feeling of this passage. And so Jesus knows what's coming. He obviously, he obviously knows that his purpose is growing or climaxing as well of why he's here on earth. And so just a reminder as we read this, one of the big statements that's being said here of Jesus or being questioned is his authority. But where does the word authority come from? When you think about it, where does authority come from? We're used to thinking of authority in political terms or leadership or CEO or uh, mother or father of household or whatever it is, right? Bosses. What they were driving at was not just like, hey, what political ruler gave you this or what religious leader is allowing you to do that? But they had seen the works of Jesus. They had, had questioned throughout Luke if he was doing these powerful works by the power of who? The devil or of God? And so they're finally, and, or they're, they're saying over and over, who, is, who, why are you different? Why do you think you're above us? Why, why do you think you can do this and upset the whole structure of the temple and the city? And why are you rallying up these, these crowds? By what authority are you doing this? 
and he pulls back, and he doesn't give an answer right away. But if you flip the page, or if you go to verse 19, there is an example. He will actually show the answer to this in two ways, one in this chapter and one that will come with his resurrection. You guys have heard the famous line from Jesus when they asked him again, it's the same group of people, should we pay tribute to Caesar? Is that okay to do? And what does Jesus say to them? This is what's happening around verse 22. He says, show me the face in the inscription on the coin. Now, do you think that Caesar was a well-known authority to them? Caesar called himself God to people. And the Jews looked at it as, what, idolatry to pay back these coins to this God-man, or, or that's how he called himself in the Roman Empire. And so they once again were trying to trap him into saying, man, are you saying that there is another God here? Are you saying, are, are you idolatrous to this other God who also is a political leader we hate? And Jesus once again goes above their question to the, or, or deeper than their question to the more deeper issue. Check out his words. I'm going to read from 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but tru truly teach the way of God. That's just pure flattery right there. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, which was a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they replied back to Jesus. They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You know where the word authority comes for when you think of Jesus and what they were testing here? It comes from author. The word authority comes from author. Who made this? Who's above this? And Jesus, in more clarity, is starting to reveal, I am the author of life. I'm the one that came to preach, preach clear good news. If you flip back, double-dutching back and forth, Back to what Jesus was doing in verse 20. You haven't seen this phrase too much in Luke. It says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. You see, Jesus started to become less abstract and more direct. This is who I am. I am the author of life. I am the one that has come to bring the good news to you. So you're seeing these testings of them saying, man, who's the author? And Jesus is almost pressed, but in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, he starts to reveal himself more and more. And here it left them silent. Back to the coin. We often, it's a clever quote, so you see people quote it all the time. And a lot of times I think in error. It sounds really nice. It sounds really poetic. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Now, isn't everything God's? So what could Jesus mean here? Is he talking about economics or paying taxes? No, I think we would miss the point of what Luke is trying to show us, what Jesus is trying to show us. 
Remember, the people were broken. They were so concerned about all the other Caesars. They were so concerned about all their power as leaders that they had forgotten whose they were. The coin had the image of Caesars. And so he says, man, that's, go ahead, give it to Caesar. My kingdom is way above Caesar's. But whose are you? Whose image is on you? Whose likeness is written on you? Give to God what is God's. Brothers and sisters, you are not a coin. Respect and have authority for the temporary Caesars God has over us in this temporary life. But what trumps all of that is that we are God's prize. His image is on us. His inscription is on us. We are God's people. So give to him yourself. Something that the Jewish people in large, speaking generally, had forgotten. They gave themselves to the broken temple. They gave themselves to a religious identity that was kind of greater and separated from everybody else when God intended them to be priests, the light of the world, right? So a word for us here is the author of life, the one that has authority, the one who never changes is Jesus. He is over all Caesars. He is the one that came to preach the good news for all ages. He is Lord and author of life. That is who he is. And so you see, they tried to test his authority, but he comes back with this, this, this rhetoric, this answer that's just above little human brains and cleverness. He's almost like, little boys, come on now. I'm much greater than even the world you see around you. I'm much greater than the, than the Caesars that you fear or that you hate. I'm the author of life. Render to God what is God's. A short word for us there. A short word for us there. My question is, do you see Jesus as your author, the author of your life? Do you see him above the Caesars that threaten or the Caesars you cheer, the political leaders you see? Do you see them? Do you see Christ as above the bosses that you have to serve? And maybe the question is better in this day and age, do you see Christ as the author over you as being your own author of your life? You see, that's when you come to this submission of God as author. That's when you see him for who he really is. The author of life who came to gave his, give his life that he will in the next couple chapters so that he can raise back to life and show that he's not only the author of life, but of death. Amen? See, this is the Jesus, the real Jesus that confronts us, that confronts the Pharisees, that confronts the broken people of God, that confronts even mature Christians, and we start losing sight about who is the author of our life, who is the author of our days, who is the author of our breath, who is the author over the problems we go through. It's Jesus, and he never changes. Amen? It's Jesus, and he never changes. If you have economic hardship, go to Jesus. He can provide for you. If you have emotional hardship, I exhort you that the greatest therapy that you can ever receive is from Jesus Christ himself, his word, through his Holy Spirit, and through his people. 
If you have hardships today, and I know you do, things that are too big for you to carry, you go to the author of life. Why? Because he writes your chapters. If you see him that way, Watchman Nee, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a pastor from the 1930s in China. He says, everything you need, throw yourself on Jesus. And every time you're not throwing yourself on Jesus, you're throwing yourself onto your own Caesar or your own authority to try to get it done. Does that speak to you? Oh, it speaks to me. Watchman Nee would say, Exhorting us from the book of Ephesians, because I just got done with his book. It's a great book. It's called Sit, Walk, and Stand, and it goes through Ephesians. He says, if you don't learn to sit in humbleness with Jesus, you can't walk and stand. Why? Because he's the one that gives you the authority to go through life. He's the one that gives you the power to go through life. He's the one that gives you the power to stand against the enemy, the devil of our souls, right? He is the authority. And so we hear, here we see, man, in a wonderful confrontation that Jesus and Luke is driving this point that he is the author of life and he is the authority. Now, I said that there was some further proof coming, more than just this conversation about Caesar, and that further proof was the resurrection is coming. What greater proof that you have author over, that you are the author over life and death than raising from the grave? Now, we hear it too much as Christians. I want you to pause and think of this. Jesus Christ historically rose from death. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have experienced death, have seen a dead corpse in the last couple years? What does it make you feel when you see that? Desperation. It makes you feel Deadness, no hope, no life. It's one of the most jarring moments. I have friends that when people pass, they don't go to their funerals. They've told me, I just can't see a life that was living without life in it anymore. So apply that desperation to Jesus showing the Pharisees and all the Jewish people, and now all of us as Gentiles that are Gentiles here, I conquered that. I made my dead body whipped to death, bled to death, broken on a, on a crucifixion tree, come back to life. I am the author. I am the author. The next theme that I want to jump into, if you could double dutch back to chapter 20, is the cornerstone. So first thing, God is the author. You can write that down. You can mind that yourself in Luke 20 this week. God is the author. Because he's the author, he has the full authority over life and death and the rebuilding of the temple and the kingdom and the new people. That is who Jesus is. So when we approach Jesus, approach him this week as the author of life. That is where our reverence comes to him. That is where our faith flows from him. That's where we know we can trust him. Amen? If he ain't the author of life, why would you trust him? If he ain't the author of life after death, why would you trust him? But he is. That I am preaching to you today. That I am encouraging you today. Get a view of the real Jesus. He is the author of life and death. He is not stuck in a history book 2,000 years ago. He is at the right hand of God Almighty right now. That is where he is at. 
And is he coming back, people of God? Yeah, so be sure of it. Don't be ashamed in our culture. Be sure of it. Jesus is your author. He grabbed your soul. He made it whole. And he's coming back for you. That's not a fairy tale. That's more real than what we see right now. All right? All right, next thing is Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. I, had a, I have a friend who's a missionary in Iraq right now. And he's been a missionary in Iraq. He's from Chicago, went to Iraq. He's been a missionary in Iraq where it's like buck wild crazy, okay? And you can look at him. I think he has four to six kids. Can't remember. Once you get over four, it's just like gone, right? I have four myself, right? It's like you got four, eight, or something like that. He went with his whole family and his wife, him, full of faith, his wife full of faith. And this is a quote that he told me before he left. He didn't grow up in a Christian household. He didn't grow up in any kind of church. This is what he said. And uh, I probably shouldn't say his name, so I won't. He said, I've been discipled all my life in the ways of the world, following my own desires. And I was guided by the people who knew no other way to live. Then I come to Christ. And now, key, and now I must relearn life itself. Every area of, me, area of me must be rebuilt, must be rebuilt. It was such a profound line. I've thought of it so many times in the last 13 years when I've gone back to patterns of my old man or old way of thinking. Or when I get discouraged, am I growing God? I remember that I'm just like that messy Lego. Jesus didn't come to fix me. He came to rebuild me. He came to rebuild you. In every area of life, we've been discipled in the flesh. We've been discipled in the ways of the world. The fact is that every day you go on Instagram or you go downtown to work or you talk to family members that don't know the Lord or you talk to another brother and sister in Christ who's acting in the flesh and not in the spirit, we get discipled in the things that are not of the things of the Lord, right? And so what the, the discipleship, learning to grow in God is actually needing to be rebuilt. So God is not fixing you, ladies and gentlemen, if you know Jesus Christ, he's rebuilding us. He's rebuilding us. And so that's why this idea of him being the cornerstone is such a grounding, anchoring, rooting picture of Jesus. So remember, he's the author, but he's the cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? I'm not sure if we have any architects in the building, but we can all observe the beautiful architecture of Chicago. Right? We boast about it. We go to other... I, I was just in Portland this week. I was like, yeah, man, your buildings are cool, but they're not like Chicago, right? It's like this, I don't know if it's a good thing, if it's a private thing, but we have beautiful architecture here. But any architecture, any architect would know that they would be erroneous, they would be amiss if they didn't start with the first stone that guides everything else, right? Some of you guys are contract, contractors with the city, and, and you've seen blueprints, and you've seen all these things. If there wasn't a key stone there, or a key thing that would guide it all, what would happen to the building? It'd be just as broken as maybe the building that was there before, that they're trying to build over. See, when Jesus came, he came to be the cornerstone, and he laid down his life to be a part of the building. He was not an architect that just kind of looked at it over there. The father had a plan. The father says to Jesus, you need to be a part of this building. That's a miracle. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about. 
that the Son of God comes from heaven to not just oversee the work, but to be the chief part of the building that will be made new. And you say the building, what is that? That's a metaphor for a new kingdom family, a new kingdom family. So let's explore from the text really quickly. Go to Luke 20, verse 9. And this, I'm actually going to read this whole parable. Remember, just don't forget the context. This is being said to the people back and forth between this confrontation with the Pharisees and the other religious juggernauts of the day. And so in verse 9, it says, and he, that being Jesus, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. And what you're going to see in this parable is that it's barely a parable. It's barely a parable. Once again, I said, Jesus is getting more direct as the time for his crucifixion is coming. And so when I read this, I was like, well, I don't even know why this is called a parable, right? And, and the Pharisees see it too at the end. They're like, man, he's talking about it. So that's the context, right? A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamely and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? What shall I do? I'm going to pause there. Who is the owner of the vineyard? Who is the owner of the vineyard? You could say Jesus, but it, it would be God. It would be the heavenly father. And he says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The people who were the tenants in the vineyard in this passage are particularly who? They're the people of God. At this point, that was the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. This is the son of the owner, right? Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a picture of what Jesus was about to do. Like I said, barely a parable. It's very clear. And they knew it was clear, too. They said he spoke this couple verses later. It says, oh, man, they, he spoke this parable against us. And did this parable come to happen a little bit later? It did. Who was the heir? Jesus, right? And Jesus, God's son, was in the vineyard of God's people, and he was put to death. But this death birthed the cornerstone, the thing that would build the new people of God, the new people of God. I want you to then jump over. To verse 34, and then I'm going to collect these thoughts for us today. Verse 34, the Sadducees were again testing him, trying to trap him into his words. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And so they were testing him to see 
what he would say. So they basically made a story up about a wife that had seven brothers that married this one wife, right? That's a lot of husbands, man. And they basically teed it off like this. Afterward, verse 32, the woman who died, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven, seven men had her as a wife. So what were they trying to do? They were trying to trap him to see if he would break a moral law here or if they could trap him into saying something that wasn't ungodly or they wanted to see if he believed in the resurrection. So all these little human traps. And this is what Jesus said. Marvel at his words right now because I was marveled at his, I marveled at his words when I was reading it this week. Once again, Jesus' answer goes way deeper and broader and bigger and more satisfying than these little petty human arguments. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. The sons of this what? This age. The sons of this age. You hear the authority coming out. Kind of him saying already in this response, listen, I see the whole book. I know the whole book. I know all the ages of creation. You see it right here. Once again, Jesus revealing who he is. The sons of this age that you're living in right now, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, another age, right? And to the resurrection from the dead, neither will marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons and daughters of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we may not trap God into questioning his authority of he's the cornerstone we're built upon, but I want to encourage you this morning that each week we go through trials, we go through hardships where we can start to forget that Christ is our cornerstone, that Christ is our authority. I want you to look right there. Christ has answers that answer our answers or will answer or answer our questions, but he also has a greater answer for all of our brokenness, for all of our need. You see here, it's like, man, you know, are we going to get married? My wife always, are we going to be married in heaven? <laughs> and I would love to. But here's the thing. You hear like Job after arguing with the Lord or questioning him, just coming to a point of praise. You hear Paul in Romans 10, 11, and 12 saying, sovereignty, free will. Right, and what does he end up, what is the question? Worship. God's answers go beyond our, even our questions because his scope is so much larger. He's the author. He's the cornerstone. We can bring all of our, not traps, but all of our, our questions to him. But just remember... That when you come to him, you come to one, God's son, that has a picture, that has a view far greater than ours of all the ages. Now, let me drill down a little bit into some application here. I'm going to say it again. Do we see Jesus as the author of our lives over every age? I know in this room this morning... You guys have probably been through the treadmills uh, as culture has shifted, maybe, 
of wondering if God, if Jesus in particular, is somebody that you can build your life upon. Because some of Jesus' beliefs and words are becoming extremely unpopular. My question to you is this. What do you think this momentary time in culture on, on the span of all eternity is going to mean if you deny Christ as the author and start to embrace new authors that you compare, I don't know if I can trust Jesus' words. Maybe I'll trust this podcaster or this, this teacher or maybe I can't trust his words. Okay, let me just issue a warning. Christ's words and his truth never change. And so what you will do is you will dive into the pool of human thought, which is aired, and it is broken, and it is faulty, and you can poke holes in it. I don't care if it's, if, if it's Darwinism. I don't care if it's another, another religion. You can stack all the arguments against Jesus. But when you confront Jesus, you confront an eternal word. You confront an eternal author, and you confront a cornerstone that you can stand upon, and one day... I preach to you now, it will matter. It will be the intersection of your life, whether you chose to trust in Christ as the author and the cornerstone, or whether you chose to deconstruct him, to wave him off, to not trust his word. It is the intersection of your soul, it is the intersection of your life, and it is what you build everything in your life upon. And one day when you give account, my prayer is this, that you will say, Jesus is my Lord. He became unpopular. Okay, Jesus is my author. Man, I don't know if I can make this decision because it's toward holiness and not toward what I want, my evil desires. Man, build your life on holy decisions. Why? Because he is the cornerstone. Don't, don't, don't leave Jesus. Get a fresh view of him this morning in this season. Well, you tell me, man, things are so hard. Absolutely. What did D read up here this morning? As you go through trials, what's going to be tested? Your faith. Oh, we say that all the time. What does that mean? What that means is what is going to be tested is if what you believe, how you view, how you believe off of those views, how you believe God's words is actually refined in what? Man, those simple statements that you read from 2 Peter, although I do not see him, man, I love him. Although I do not see him, man, I trust him. See, you don't need all the theological hoops or to go depth and do that. Know the word of God. But at the end of the day, it is a relationship with God where Jesus will say, man, did you trust me in my words? I laid it all out for you. That is where you should build your life. Don't leave Jesus Christ because his teachings get unpopular or because you're hated in the culture. And I know you're feeling it. I'm feeling it. I was just in Portland. I brought up Jesus twice. How do you think people looked at me? Hey, but that shame, man, is for his glory. And go back to the day that he saved you. I think about one of the hymns that we just read. Oh, man, that line where it said, I don't even know it verbatim, but it said, man, Christ came into that darkness and he like split. He split the vision open. Man, when I was 15, man, I was so, I'd heard about Christ all my life. And this is the power of the word of my testimony. It's the power I'm preaching from the word of God, but it's also because I've seen it in my own life. And I declare to you now, man, Jesus is real. When I was 15, I was alone. I was hiding stuff from my parents, from everybody in this church. I was hiding stuff even from myself. 
I was following all my desires. And in my room, the Holy Spirit came and he preached the gospel to me. You say, how? Through the seeds of the gospel that were implanted in my mind, they came to life. And I saw all the garbage I was in. And Christ said, man, if you died tonight, where would you go? And I knew Christ wasn't my author. I knew he wasn't my cornerstone. And he showed a mirror to me while I was in prayer. And he said, take a look at yourself. What do you got when you come to Christ? When your life is accounted for? I said, man, all I got is darkness. And the Holy Spirit answered my heart as I believed in Jesus Christ. And I became a new man. You say you were 15. God has no age limits. He speaks to his people. His image was on me. So I ask you, do you have a power of testimony? Not from 15 years ago, not from 12 years ago, but in your life right now. Are you experiencing God as the author and the cornerstone of your life? Do you love when his Holy Spirit teaches you through the word and through experience? Do you long for Jesus' coming? Long for it. Do you look up and say, man, I want to live for the Father because that's the only authority that I'm ever going to care about. Care about what God thinks. He is the author. He's the cornerstone. You know, I want to end with this. You say, man, all these Pharisees, they got it wrong. All these scribes, they got it wrong. Even the crowds, they got it wrong. Did disciples of Jesus even get it wrong? For a long period of time, they did. Even Peter, everybody wants to say, man, look at the change of Peter. Peter messed up in Acts too, right? Even as a follower of Jesus Christ, he messed up in Acts as the leader of the church. So we all need this fresh word that Jesus is our author, our cornerstone that we build a life upon. So you say, man, who got it right? Who got it right? Well, as I finished up the passage I was given to preach, I want to exhort us to be widows. Take a look at verse uh, chapter 21, and this is what we'll conclude with. Who saw Jesus Christ as the author? Who walked out in faith the cornerstone of Jesus? I think Luke plops this down after all this uh, confrontation with the religious leaders of the day and the crowds and all this. And I think he plops this right here because it's what Jesus desires from all of us. It's a picture of someone that truly trusts in Christ. Chapter 21, verse 1 says this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Than all of who? All the rich, all the religious leaders. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Once again, there's some principles for tithing here, for giving to the Lord, but I don't think that that's the main reason it's here. It would just kind of be out of place. I think what Luke is showing us here is that the person that no one cares about, the person who has no abundance of intellect or, or, or accolades or positions was actually abundant in faith. 
abundant in trust. If you're a widow that has nothing and you go to the altar to give all you have, what does that say of your view of God? See, it's all God wants from us, guys. He doesn't want you to prove himself, yourself to him. He doesn't want you to be the best you can be. He wants us to be a widow full of trust in him. You see, we are that Lego <laughs> that has been broken to the degree that it wouldn't even be kind for Jesus to just come fix us because then we might say, oh, he fixed my arm, but he didn't fix the other parts of me. No, he came, he says, I need to break you to rebuild you. When he talked about himself being the cornerstone, he said, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, there's one terrifying way of being crushed. It's that you'll never be rebuilt again. And ladies and gentlemen, there will be a day when judgment comes where many human beings will not be rebuilt again in the way, the glorious way that God wants them to rebuild because they will come to God the Father and they will be broken in their sin and they'll still say, man, I'm still trying to fix myself. I did good works. I did this. I did that. But they won't come like the widow. The widow came in her poverty. And on that day when we look at God the Father and he says, give me an account for your life, I think what he wants is a line of widows that say, I had nothing. I followed Jesus, and he was my all. He was my cornerstone. He was my author. He was my savior. He was my Lord. He was my everything. And I did not do it perfectly, but it's God's Christ's perfection over me. Would you accept me? And he's going to say, I already have in Christ Jesus. So the position that we have in Christ is never to be looked down upon. You are in the most privileged place because God knows your name. He has rebuilt your soul if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know everybody here this morning. If you know of God, if God is a part of your religion, if he's just a brick in your nominalist religion, I go to church to put, kind of get my life in order, I would tell you you're not broken enough. Be a widow. Come before him. And say, God, rebuild me from, from my soul up. Be the cornerstone of my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. I want to walk with God. And that is when new life starts. That is when new life starts. So come to him today, man. If you are visiting, you're like, I've been so far from God. God is saying, man, come close. I'm not that far away. I'm right here. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was preaching it in the temple that day, he was preaching toward himself. Look at me is what he was saying. I'm the cornerstone for life. I'm the author that can save your life now and for all eternity. He's the only one with the authority to do so. And Christians, this is a word for you. This is a word for me. Have you forgotten that Jesus Christ is your key cornerstone that aligns up your whole life? I want you to ask you to close your eyes. And I, I came with a word this morning because I feel 
I sense that it's something that probably needs to be said to our body to help the spirit flow more deeply here at Edgewater in us, and I include myself. I want you to take a look at your heart and ask yourself if you're aligning your life up with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I also want to ask you if there's areas of your life that are out of whack with the cornerstone, places you're not trusting him, places you don't think he's that strong to help you, economic situations where you say, I don't think, I think this is beyond his power. Perhaps there's places where you've been doing the routine of Christianity, following Jesus, going to church, but constantly guarding yourself. You're like, I can't open this up to that brother. I can't open up this to to my God. I can't confess that. And because of it, Jesus is a stumbling stone. Your, your, Your prayers aren't the same because you're afraid to go to him, because there's this hidden garbage in your life. Or, or perhaps there's an area where you say, yeah, God is my trust in your, in your voice, in, in your words, but in your heart you trust in yourself. You trust in your work ethic. You trust in your job. You fail in sin, and you just try to work your way back to doing good. Or maybe you've forgotten that God came to rebuild the temple, and you are the temple. And so holiness matters. That he's so jealous over his people that he looks at our heart and his spirit gets quenched when we continue to fill our life up with filth. When we continue to fill our, li- our eyes up with pornography, when we con- continue to fill our heart up with covetousness, if I could only be her, if I could only be him, that thing he told you to turn off, that account that you don't need because you find your identity in it. If anything, we learn from this passage is that God is not concerned about the outside. He's concerned about the inside. He doesn't want scribes and Pharisees with beautiful clothes. He wants a widow who comes submitting themselves, surrendering to Christ and trusting him for all he is. 